0: And uh, we'll continue in that this morning. This morning we want to look at God's view of murder. What does the Bible say about murder? Murder is obviously a result of some kind of conflict that people are having. Uh, it could be a uh, domestic crime. It could be, uh, or I mean, it could be a crime. It could be a domestic squabble, uh, love triangle, gang warfare, all types of arguments, fights, all those kind of things, misunderstandings. They can end in murder. And I uh, went on the internet, and I uh, these aren't recent statistics, but they're relatively recent. Um, murders go on all the time. They go on all day long. There's 45 people murdered today. 1369 per month. 16,425 per year. Um, That's not including the 4,000 unborn children that we talked about that are murdered every day in the United States. Um, It's it's interesting to me that we just kind of turn the other way and allow this to continue, not expecting God to intervene somehow and judge this nation. Um, The writer uh, Ray Stedman, in his book, God's Loving Word, said this, and I quote, As a society, we have our values upside down. Our government creates entire bureaucracies to monitor minute amounts of suspected carcinogens in our food, our air, and our water, yet it also pays subsidies to farmers for producing one of the worst, most highly cancer-causing substances around, tobacco. We are told we must save the whales, yet we allow unborn babies to be slaughtered at a rate, back then, of 3,000 abortions per day. School teachers are allowed to teach witchcraft, New Age, philosophy, and even today, our update is, quote, uh, Islam, in our public schools, yet the Bible, prayer, and the Ten Commandments are banned. We sentence peaceful pro-life activists to prison, and yet we turn continually convicted, repeated killers and rapists loose on society. That was some years ago. But that describes what goes on in our society today. Um, Matter of fact, murders are so commonplace in some places they don't even put them in the paper unless they're really grisly and they're multiple or some kind of bizarre circumstance. Uh, Murder is a a really uh, serious problem in our society and in our world and it's continually, continually getting worse not to mention suicide and abortion and other things that happen. Well, scripture has something to say about it and here in our text this morning Matthew 5:21 remember Jesus is talking to the religious people of the day here and they're within his hearing and he says to them, you have heard that it was said to those of old you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment Well, where does that come from? We know that it comes out of Exodus chapter twenty, verse thirteen. When God gave the, the law, he gave the ten commandments, one of them was what? Thou shalt not what? Kill or murder. All right? Now scripture has a lot more to say about that. And if you look over in Genesis chapter 9, Genesis chapter 9, and look at verse 6. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Interesting. That the consequence of murder, according to God's word, is what? Capital punishment. A lot of people have a problem with being pro-life when it comes to abortion, and yet, well, you're for capital punishment. How do those two go together? Well, I think it's perfectly scriptural to hold that kind of a view. Because capital punishment was ordained not by man, but by God himself. God instituted capital punishment as a punishment, as a penalty for murder. Because to take the life of a human being As he put it, is an assault basically on his image because he was created, man was created in the image of God. Whereas in an abortion, it's just an innocent life that's being slaughtered. Babies never killed anybody that I know of. Well, one way to define. Murder is to look at what it is, but also what it is not. And in Exodus chapter 20, 13, you see the word kill there, and that's where a lot of people get confused. They say, well, capital punishment is killing somebody, so that's wrong. Um, it does not refer to capital pun- punishment. That is taking a life under divine allowance by by God himself. In Romans thirteen four, it says... By the hand of those who beareth not the sword in vain. Speaking of the government. The government's job is to protect the citizens of their country. So they institute laws. One of those laws is if you kill somebody, you're going to have some consequences. Well, God says those consequences should be your own life. It doesn't refer, that word kill, so it doesn't refer to capital punishment. It also doesn't refer to war. A lot of peace activists think, oh, well, you know, this commandment refers to you shouldn't go into war and kill somebody, so they're pacifists. It doesn't refer to a just war and the divine plan of history because there's conflicts on a national level which carry out the will of God in judgment upon some nations. That's what happened in the Bible. That's what happens, I believe, even today. Nor do I believe that in Exodus chapter 20, it speaks of something in self-defense. If someone breaks into your home and is going to injure you or your family, you have every right to protect yourself. And if they're using deadly force, you better have something ready to go. You better have a plan to protect you or your family. I heard something the other day of a um, response... ...to uh, uh, 9 ...when somebody called... ...I heard it on a talk show... ...it took almost um, five minutes... ...for this young person... ...I think he was 12 or 11... ...for the police to arrive... ...when he was having a home invasion robbery... ...and luckily he did the right thing... ...he took a baseball bat that he had... ...he hid in the closet... ...and when the guy opened the door... ...he racked him in the knees and in the head... ...and then he ran out the house... ...but it took five minutes... ...for the police to respond... ...so you might want to be thinking... ...well what am I going to do if that happens... And it's happening more frequently, more and more. There's nothing wrong with defending your house, your loved ones, something like that. That's not what it's talking about here. It's not talking about taking a life in self-defense of yourself or others. Furthermore, I don't think it's talking about accidental deaths. I remember my brother, who's now passed away, not Bob, but Johnny, um, when he was, I think, a freshman or sophomore in in, in college, Um, He was coming down from visiting his girlfriend's house, and uh, he hit a drunk driver, and he killed him, manslaughter. And I'll never forget, after my brother passed away several years later, when the Air Force became a dentist, and and he he passed away over in Germany, but I remember almost to the day on the anniversary of my brother's death, the the mother of this uh, person who was drunk at the wheel sends us our family a card. Just kind of reminding us that our brother took her son. Even though it wasn't at fault or anything. I mean, it was just, you know, incredible. Well, you know, that's not, that doesn't fall under murder, an accidental death. Well, what is murder then? Let's define it as the Bible defines it. In, in Exodus 21, 14, we read very clearly, but, but if a man comes uh, presumptuously upon his neighbor to slay him with guile... Thou shalt take him from mine altar, and he may die. First of all, murder is punishable by death. That's what the Bible says. If you cold-heartedly murder somebody, the Bible calls for your blood. Secondly, it's authored by the devil himself. 844 says that the devil is a what? He's a murderer. Okay? So it's punishable by death. It's authored by the devil. It's also a manifestation of an evil heart. In Matthew 15, uh, verse 19, we see that there's all sorts of of evil things dwelling in the heart of man. See, some people believe that we're kind of innately good, that there's some good in man. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says just the opposite. Um, And in Matthew 15, 19, it says, For out of the heart proceeds, listen to this, evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications... Uh, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. So he puts murders, thefts, and all those other things. They don't happen because you were raised a certain way or you were, you were deprived socially of something or some kind of s- stressful situation that you were put put in. They, are, they happen because of your heart, and your heart is degenerate. It's desperately evil, the Bible says. So it's also, fourthly, a result of a reprobate mind. In, in Romans chapter 1, verse 28... It says that man has been given over to a reprobate mind as a result. He is, and here's what it says, filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy. Then he says, murder, strife, deceit. See, man is a murderer because he has a reprobate mind that has been given over to evil. And the reason that is, if you read there in Romans, you'll find out it's because he rejected God. He rejected God's way, and he went his own way. And there comes a point in time where God says, you know what? I've done everything I can. I mean, my son came to die for you. I've I've offered you salvation. your, Your proud heart will not accept it. Okay, go your way. And God gives them over to what the Bible calls a reprobate mind. It's a result of that. That's where murder comes from. You don't just wake up one morning and say, hey, I think I'll go murder somebody. Fifthly, it's an act of the flesh. Galatians five twenty one says that murder is a deed done by the unregenerate human heart, human nature. It's a, it's a deed of the flesh. Sixthly, it's an abomination to God. Proverbs six sixteen, Proverbs chapter six verse sixteen to seventeen says six things does the Lord hate. Yea, even seven are an abomination to him. A proud look a lying tongue and hands that what shed innocent blood. That's what murder is. It's the shedding of innocent blood. Seventh thing here, a cause for what murder is, is is actually your ticket to hell is what it is, outside of God's forgiveness of that sin. In Revelation 22, verses 14 and 15, it says, Blessed are they that wash their robes, that they might have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through gates into the city. For outside, outside the gates, that is, are dogs, sorcerers, fornicators, and what? Murderers. See, the kingdom of God in its eternal state is not a place where a murderer will dwell. So it's, it's very important that we understand that, that there's consequences. What murder is, what murder is not. Well, let's look at what we're looking at this morning in Matthew 5 to kind of bring us into the, the text of what we're, we're looking at. And remember, in Matthew 5 through 7, the Lord is basically addressing the scribes and the Pharisees of the day. They were the religious people, the people that wore the robes, the people that looked holier than thou. You know, uh, all, the, all the people that you think are your worst nightmare as far as religiosity goes, that's who Jesus was addressing. And you can kind of see our Lord addressing the scribes and the Pharisees here on the hillside in Galilee. And the rest of the multitude are there as well, as well as the disciples. And he begins, and he really begins by confronting their superficial approach to all this stuff. Their super, superficial approach to life. And he says in verse 21, he says, You have heard that it was said of you of those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. See, what Jesus is saying to them there is, you know what, you believe it's wrong to murder because if you do, you're going to get in trouble. That's why you believe that it's wrong to murder. You'll be in danger of judgment. And at that point, many of the Jews would probably be thinking, hey, you know, right on, that's right, amen. We're against murder and murder's an evil thing and and we would never murder anyone. Therefore, we've kept the law of God. Thou shalt not kill. And they're probably feeling pretty good about themselves. In fact, the thought that they did not murder was one way in which they could convince themselves that they were righteous. A lot of us here today probably are sitting here thinking, well, I never murdered anybody. I've never taken a life innocently. Maybe you have. I don't know. But if you haven't, we're probably sitting here, those of us who have not taken a life innocently, we're probably thinking, hey, you know, that's, that's right. We're feeling pretty good about ourselves. And see, they even carried it a step further. They thought that they did not murder anyone. And they thought they were righteous. And they even carried it on to the next thing we're going to look at next week is thou shalt not commit adultery. And, you know, they justify themselves into regard to the, the, the commandments. And they didn't commit this overt act of adultery. They convinced themselves that they were holy. They didn't commit this overt act of murder, so therefore, they're holy. And you stop and you think, who would murder somebody? Who would innocently just take somebody's life? Who would go up to somebody in a shopping mall and say, I want your sneakers and shoot them in the head and take the shoes off their feet and wear them home? There's people that do that on a daily basis. That's just the kind of society we live in, unfortunately. And we sit here this morning and we say, well, how horrible is that? What a terrible breed of humanity is that? That's a different kind of person than what I am. I would never do something like that. I'm not that kind of person. And you know what? Most of us are probably feeling that way right now. And Jesus is putting us right in there with the scribes and the Pharisees because that's exactly how they were feeling. See, they they looked at their religiosity and they said, oh, this kind of superficially makes me righteous because I don't do these certain things. I'm not as bad as that person. And Jesus wants to confront them on that. You remember, he just said to them in verse 20, except that your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll no way enter heaven. So he said, to get into heaven, you have to have some form of righteousness. And you know what? The scribes and the Pharisees have some righteousness. They do have some righteousness. It's just the wrong kind. And yours has to exceed that. What their attitude was, hey, if we don't murder, we're righteous. If we don't commit adultery, we're righteous. See, but Jesus was telling them, your righteousness has to exceed that. That's not enough. Not murdering someone is not enough to get you into heaven. And Jesus basically gives them a teaching here that blows them away. It blows them right out of the water. It affects their their views in three ways. It affects the view of themselves, it affects their view of God, and it affects their view of others. Let's look at the first thing here. The teaching of Jesus had an effect upon them and upon their self-righteousness. Remember, they had a tradition And we talked about this at length last week. We're not going to go into it. You can get the message. But last week we looked at the idea that the, the Jewish religion of the day purely focused on the external. They said, if you're not going to do certain things, well, then that makes you righteous. And if you do do certain things, then that makes you righteous. That'd be as silly as saying, well, if you come to church, then you're righteous. If you don't come to church, you're not righteous. Or if you pray every day, you're righteous. If you don't pray every day, you're not righteous. That's purely an external thing. There's a lot of people that pray every day. There's a lot of people that go to houses of worship every day. Not just on Sunday. Some world religions, they have to pray three, five times a day. And they do it faithfully. It's amazing. And it's all external. Well, that's what their tradition was. And he's kind of reminding his listeners that the things that you heard about, not God's law, but their interpretations of the law, the oral tradition that was handed down because the rabbis looked at the law of God and they said, we could never keep this. Let's interpret it for our own means. And well, okay, uh, honor the Sabbath. That means you can't carry a stick around on Saturday. You know, and they made up all these silly things so that if they kind of walked in their little silly regulations, then they were feeling righteous about themselves. And God was looking at that going, this is not right. And so Jesus came and he began to explain to them that it's not emphasizing the externals that God is concerned with. In other words, their tradition on this point was essentially biblical as far as murdering. They have a foundation in Exodus 20. They understand that. But the point that Jesus was making here is that the rabbinical teaching didn't go far enough. It's not enough just not to physically take somebody else's life. There's so much more that it means than that. The Jews had taken God's law and only partially interpreted and applied it so they could justify themselves. It's kind of like, you know, we do once in a while. I mean, we're driving our car and, and, you know, maybe we're out for a relaxing drive and everything's fine. Driving the speed limit, you know, feel good about ourselves. Then we're late for an appointment. And we justify in our mind, it's okay to go down 50 miles an hour down Jefferson, even though it's 35 or 40. It's okay. Got to understand. And we rationalize that way. Well, that's what they were doing. They would look at God's law and say, surely, he doesn't mean this. So let's interpret it for our own reasons, in our own, the, the way that we can fulfill it. As a matter of fact, that word judgment there, when he says you'll be in Fear of of judgment, danger of judgment, literally means the local court. So Jesus wasn't really even talking here about the judgment of God. He was saying the only reason you don't go out and murder somebody physically is because you know that you, you would be hauled into jail and you would be judged by the local authorities. See, that doesn't go far enough in Jesus' book. You don't just obey the law when it's convenient. You don't just obey the law because you're fearful of getting judged by the law. That's not a reason to obey the law. And Jesus says you have to go further than that. The Jews' full interpretation of the sixth commandment was don't kill because if you do, you'll get into trouble with the law. That's kind of what they meant. So in seeking to merely avoid legal problems, they said, hey, you know what? Let's just kind of not do these things because it might get us in trouble. They don't even go into the discussion of what Jesus is going to take them into right now. And so they were focused mainly on the externals. Well, Jesus' teaching, on the other hand, was focused purely on the internals. He was concerned with people's hearts, as he still is today. Um, in Psalm fifty-one six, it says that God desires truth in the inward parts. And Jesus reinforced this truth when he said in Mark 12.30, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. See, the Old Testament clearly taught that God knows the hearts, and he tries the hearts of men. And the Jews basically kind of disregarded that internal part of the law. They just said, well, that's not important. What's important is the letter of the law. Did we kill somebody today? No. Okay, then we're righteous. It wasn't enough for one not to kill. God was concerned more with what's going on on the inside. Well, what does he say? He says here in verse 22 of Matthew, But I say to you, in other words, here's what you've heard from your rabbinical teachers and tradition, but now I'm going to speak to you, and I'm going to speak to you very frankly. He says, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. They're probably looking at Jesus about this time and saying, what on earth are you talking about? See, what he's communicating to them is, you know what, the issue is not murder alone. That's not what the focus here is. The issue is the issue of anger and the issue of hatred in your heart. And he wants them clearly to understand, you can't sit there and justify yourself just because you never physically took someone else's life. Because you've probably been angry enough to do that, (laughs) or wanted to. (coughs) And he says it goes so much deeper than the external. And it affected the Jews' self-righteousness. But you know what? It should also (laughs) affect our self-righteousness. You know, we justify ourselves all the time. Admitting we would never probably kill somebody, obviously. But at the same time, sometimes we get so angry on the inside with somebody and we mock and we curse and we hold grudges and bitterness against them. And God's saying, you think that's okay? See, Jesus is implying that God looks at our hearts. He basically swept all the rabbinical traditions and rubbish out of the way, and he said, now here's where the emphasis should be. Not just on the external, not just on the actions that you may or may not do, but on your attitude. And he stripped away all this self-righteousness that they had, and he taught them that anger is the root of murder and consequently merits equal punishment. See, our Lord was basically saying to these folks that what goes on on in the inside of you is what God, God judges. I don't know about you, but that's a fearful thing to think about. It's not just what goes on the outside. Because, you know what, we can control what goes on the outside. I remember talking to a counselor one time and said, you know, sometimes I just get so angry, just yeah, frustrated, you know, just got a conversation with my wife and just, well, uh, and then you say things you regret. <coughs> and he goes, well, you need to learn to control that. So I just can't. It just happens. You know, I don't know. I mean, before I know it, I'm, well. And he said, no, you can't. He said, I'll give you an illustration. Say so you and your wife are going at it. Heated battle. <laughs> oh, all of a sudden, the phone rings. What happens? Or someone knocks on the door. Better yet. thought oh, we stopped by for a visit, Pastor. Oh, hi. Come on in. What happens to the argument? It just stops. What happens? You begin to control yourself. All of a sudden, the whole dynamic changes. You don't just continue fighting. What do you do? You control the situation. So that you won't be found out. So we can, by God's help, deal with this issue. But see, they weren't even concerned with that. They were just saying, hey, as long as you don't kill your wife, it's okay. <laughs> you can say whatever you want, do whatever. It doesn't matter. Just don't kill her physically. That's okay. And God saying, no, that's not okay. What's going on in your heart? Our Lord's saying, what goes on on the inside is the way God judges us. The terms of judgment of which you are worthy... You know, you may never kill anyone, but you're definitely guilty in God's eyes if you hate, or you're angry, or all these other things that he listens here. Now, when he talks here of brother, in verse 22, he says, whoever is angry with his brother, it's a broad term, it's a generic sense of social relationships. He's not talking about a, a spiritual brother here. He's not talking about another Christian. All right, Because nobody listening to Jesus at that time would have understood the brotherhood of believers yet. They just wouldn't get it. So he can't be talking about that. He's just talking in kind of a general term. So if you've been angry and you've hated before, what he's saying is you're a murderer. From God's perspective. There's no difference between your anger and the man who goes out and actually commits the crime. And Jesus strikes... Very hardly here to show us that even the best of men, if the truth were known, can be the what? The worst of men. See, that's why I say it's so easy to camouflage ourselves, make ourselves look a certain way. And we can sit so smugly and look down our noses at everybody else. I would never have that problem. I would never do that. I would never do this. But Jesus says here, if you've been angry, if you've hated, then you know what? You're a murderer in my book. And he gives several illustrations here. In verse 22, he talks about the sin of anger. Whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. Now, anger is obviously a serious sin, and a lot of us deal with it in different ways. But there's also a righteous anger. It's not just wrong to be angry. I mean, if you're wrong, angry for the wrong reason, then it's definitely wrong. But you can be angry for the right reason. Remember in John 2 when Jesus took the cord and started driving people out of the temple? I don't think he went around saying, okay, I think you're going to have to leave now. You know, no, that's not what it indicates happened. There was some anger there. There was some righteous indignation. And he was totally justified in that. So there are times when a believer has the right to be angry. I think we need a little more of that kind of anger in, in our Christian lives rather than just kind of watch the, 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 the world go by in a, a handbasket headed for hell and go, oh, well, you know, I know my place is in glory. I think it's time that we stop and, and we do start to call to task some of these decisions that our country's making and, and government's making and begin to say, you know what, this doesn't line up with the Bible. I'm going to vote, and I'm going to vote my conscience before God, that I'm going to align myself with God's desires, with what God wants. See, and we've come to a point in time where we look at the candidates in the voting thing, and we look at them and we go, well, you know, if we vote for this guy, he'll give us free handouts. And, you know, I know he's he's pro-abortion and all that, but that's never going to change anyway, so who cares? How sad, how sad is that? I can't imagine a Christian voting for a candidate who is pro-abortion. It just blows my mind, and it angers me, to be honest with you, I think that somehow we convince ourselves that this whole political thing is, well, you can't mix church and politics and all that. You know, we have a responsibility as believers to stand up for what is right according to the Bible. It's not about winning elections. So many times we go into an election and we say, well, if we vote for this guy, yeah, he he lines up right with the Bible. On everything. But if I vote for him, I'm just throwing my vote away because he'll never make it. And so we think that somehow when we go into that ballot box, it's all about winning an election. I really don't care who wins the election. I really don't. I want to know when I go to vote, I'm voting before God. My conscience, as, as God lays it out in his word, and if I vote for somebody who's never going to get elected, who cares? But I know that I can walk away saying, you know what, I did the right thing. And we need to stand up as churches, and we need to begin to take back some of the things that we've given over to this liberal society in which we live, and just say, oh, well, you know, it's all going to end in a ball of fire anyway. Just hope Jesus comes back first. Do you ever think, what if he doesn't? What if Jesus doesn't come back for another hundred years? I don't know about you, but i got grandkids that got to live in this world. I mean, I'm concerned for their welfare. We need to wake up. And so that kind of anger, there's nothing wrong with that. But it needs to motivate us to do something. Some of you are probably saying, you shouldn't be talking about politics in church. I don't care. It's it's, it's not talking about politics. Go vote for whoever you want. But I'm saying as a believer, as a Bible-believing Christian, hopefully you're concerned with what God thinks on these issues. And it's just not about who's going to give you more tax breaks or who's going to give you this or who's going to give you that. I think if God were to vote today, the one thing that he would look at, number one thing on somebody's little list of where they're at, is are they pro-life or are they pro-abortion? I think that's the single issue that is so important because of the very fact that murder is wrong in God's eyes. And we need to express a little bit of concern, a little bit of anger. We get a little get a little bit passionate about these things sometimes, and not just continue to sleep uh, as as everything goes on around us. Ephesians four twenty six says be angry in sin not. There's a right kind of anger. Obviously here, he's not talking about the right kind of anger. The obviously thing he's talking about here, he's talking about a selfish kind of angry, anger. To be angry here kind of comes from the, the, the Greek root word, which, which means to kind of brood about something, to kind of nurse an anger. And it, don't allow it to die. It's kind of smoldering. It's always there in your heart. And every time you hold a grudge bitterly against somebody, no matter how small, Jesus says, you know what, you're as guilty as the person who takes a life. (laughs) And consequently, you deserve the same judgment. That's hard for us to comprehend. But that's really what he's saying. here. There shouldn't be any difference because they are both as serious as each other. In fact, that same Greek word here for judgment is used at the end of verse 21 to refer to the To the sentence meted out by the civil court for murder. And Jesus says, if you're angry, then you're in danger of execution. Capital punishment should belong to you for anger, just as it is for murder. That's crazy in our ears, but that's really what he's saying. He's he's trying to wake them up. It forces us to evaluate not just our external behavior, but our what? Our internal attitudes. It isn't so much what we're doing, beloved, it's who we are and what we're feeling, what we're about on the inside. Obviously, the civil court in the world would not give the death penalty to someone who's getting angry, rightly so. But if God is the one sitting on the throne and calling the verdicts, then we better accept the fact that the one who is angry is just as guilty as the one who kills because it's all sin then he goes on there in verse 22. He says, Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, has the idea of not only the sin of anger involved here, but the sin of slander. Um, another person condemned as a murderer who ought to go before the council and get the same death penalty. Uh, that word, Raka, we really don't know what it means. Um, it's obviously not a good term. <laughs> you know, uh, It could be fool or empty-headed, blockhead, whatever worthless, brainless idiot, you know, you can go on and on with things that you could fill in there, but we really don't know in that day what it really meant. But we do know that it wasn't meant for their edification, (laughs) okay? It was an expression of slander against somebody that you didn't really care for. So our Lord says that contempt is murder committed in the heart. has has this contempt for murder committed in the heart. And I I think that it's important that we understand that. When we feel inside, that it's enough to, you know, damn us into eternal hell as much as we do on the outside. Our actions are just as important as our attitudes. And somehow we get that all mixed up. And later later on there, he not only talks about the uh, sin of anger and the sin of slander, but also cursing. But whoever says, uh, shall say, thou fool. Moros, a moron, shall be in danger of hellfire. Um, this is the worst thing, apparently, that you could say to someone. Um, and it's, it's speaking of someone who rebelled against God. And so, you call someone a rebel against God. To accurately call somebody a rebel against God, you would be doing him a favor. But to call him as a kind of a, just a hatred kind of an attitude, that's wrong. As a matter of fact, Jesus used this term in Matthew twenty-three, seventeen. He said to the Pharisees, you fools. <laughs> Same term. It wasn't wrong for him to use it because they were truly people who rebelled against God. In, in Psalm 14, 1, it says, The fool has said in his heart, what? There is no God. See, the fool lives a life of self-will and self-design set against God. That's what Proverbs nineteen, three says. And so when we call someone like that a fool, well, rightfully so. He even had to say say to his own disciples as they were walking on the road to Emmaus, remember this in Luke 24, 25, O foolish ones, (laughs) and slow of heart to believe. So when you use it in the wrong way, then obviously it's wrong. And that's what Jesus is pointing out here. Now, he he talks about what happens. Um, and he, he's kind of destroying their self-righteous attitude and all this stuff, and he he uses the word hellfire, and it's basically translated from the Greek as Gehenna, and it's a, it's a word with a history. It's commonly used as translated hell, but it has this geographic reference to this place, the valley of uh, Hinnom, outside on the southwest side of the old city of Jerusalem, and Basically, what they used to do there is they'd dump all their garbage there and they would burn it. And it would just sit there and smolder and smoke. And you know. And he uses that smelly, horrible place as a vivid illustration to describe an eternal state called hell. Uh, you, know, you don't hear this in a lot of churches today, but there is such a place called hell. And everybody who does not come to Christ as their Lord and Savior and repent of their sin and acknowledge Christ as Lord and Savior is going to end up one day in hell as a judgment for their own sinfulness. That's what the Bible says. It's not a fun place. It's not a place where you go and you party with all your buddies. doesn't work that way. I mean, you know, you would want to think that, but it doesn't work that way. It's a place the Bible describes as utter Darkness of eternal burning, and yet the flesh is never consumed. Have you ever been burned? Have you ever been burned maybe severely? I remember when I was little, I don't know if I was two or three or whatever, but my uh, sister, I, th- I thought it was my mom all these years, and finally my sister confessed to me, but uh, she drew a bath for me and of hot water. She didn't put any cold water in. I was in there messing around, and I actually fell in the tub. And I remember, you know, I don't remember this incident, but... Um, I remember seeing pictures of me have these little mitts on. And what they'd do, they had to wrap each individual finger so they wouldn't grow together. I'd probably be a good swimmer if they didn't do that because I'd have webbed, <laughs> webbed hands. But, you know, they, they had to wrap each individual one. I had them wrapped up for, you know, probably a month and a half or whatever before they could take these things off. And maybe that's why I wash my hands and it's so much. I don't know, you know. It's just kind of weird. I think about that sometimes. But I remember, you know, thinking, boy, I wonder what that felt like. I don't remember it, thank God. But anybody who's been burned... That's not an experience you want to do again. You know, you don't burn yourself while you're cooking dinner. Oh, I burned myself. That felt kind of good. I go, do it again. Oh, let's get the other hand. You don't do that. You never do that because it hurts. Well, can you imagine an eternity in hell with that pain and that anguish never, ever, ever going away? What a horrible place. And see, Jesus says, hey, that's where you're going. If you do not... Come to me for the forgiveness of, of your sins. And if you don't you know, use these, you know, these these malicious things and these actions, murder or whatever, that doesn't excuse you necessarily of that. Because we don't get to heaven by not doing certain things. God isn't up there with a big tablet waiting there going, Oh, Steve, did you ever commit murder? No. Okay, come on in. Did you ever commit Don't. No, come on in. No, that's not it. When he looks at us, it, you know, he sees the righteousness of Christ because we have no righteousness of our own. We would never make it on our own. A lot of people say, well, don't you think Christianity is a crutch? Yeah, it's more than a crutch. You know, it's, it's a cart. It's whatever you want it to be. But I, I need it to get to heaven. It's so important that we, we understand that. Well, secondly, it not only had an effect on themselves, on their self-righteousness, but his teaching on murder also had an effect on their worship of God. He, he now moves from the Pharisees and the scribes to the other people, um, and he deals with the areas of worship. And worship was a major issue with the scribes and the Pharisees. Their whole life was worship. They were in the temple all the time, supposedly worshiping God. They made sacrifices, they'd carry out the law, they'd do all these things. And though their life was kind of a uh, one of external worship, our Lord condemns their kind of worship right here. Because God is concerned with internal things, such as attitudes toward others, how you feel about your brother, how you speak to him. And so he he continues here, and he says in verse 23, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Well, what's Jesus saying here? Jesus basically says that reconciliation comes before acceptable worship to God. If you're not reconciled, you know that somebody has something against you, or you have something against somebody else, and that's just kind of burning down in your heart, and you think that somehow you can come to church and, and acceptably worship God, you're dead wrong you dead wrong. He says here you're to settle that breach between man and man before you settle the breach between man and God. It shouldn't have been anything new to their audience, but it had always uh, been God's standard. In Isaiah 1 God said to Israel, "To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me?" saith the Lord. He says, "I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fed beasts. I delight not in the blood of bullocks and of lambs and of uh, goats, bring no more vain oblations. incense is an abomination unto me. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. This is God speaking. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. Does he feel, sound a little fed up? I think he does. Your hands are full of blood, he says, And then he says this: Learn to do well, seek justice relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. He's saying, don't you dare come to me with your religion until you've made your life right with the poor, with the oppressed, with the orphans, and with the widows. In the words of Jesus here, he says, deal with your brother and then deal with me. Um, He's saying, if you're Pharisees, if you guys come here and you start worshiping and all that stuff, I don't want any of it. I don't want one single thing. Go away, make it right with your brother, your sister, whoever it is, and then come back. And I think that that's such an important point that we lose today. In verse 23, he says there, If you bring your gift to the altar, and remember your brother has something against you. Notice, it's not even the issue about your anger. He's already dealt with that. But he's talking about somebody else's anger toward you. I think the implication here is that the one making the offering has caused the anger in the other, but he doesn't say that. Whereas in verse 22, he says, if you're angry, you're in danger of condemnation. Verse 23, he says, if anybody's angry at you, God doesn't want your worship. <laughs> yeah, let's all just go home. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's crazy. Our Lord shows his holiness in the fact that he's not even dealing with the anger of the one worshiping, he's dealing with the one... Now, with the need of resolving the anger against the worshiper. You may know somebody who's upset with you. You may not have even done anything, even though you may not feel angry toward them. Jesus' point is, you know what, you need to go settle the issue. Don't leave it undone. I mean, a lot of people in the church today are talking about, what can we do to improve the quality of worship? The quality of worship this, the quality of worship that. I think the way to increase meaningful worship is to get the people out who don't have any business worshiping God. <laughs> because there's something wrong with their personal lives. It needs to be resolved. They're, they're causing a hindrance to the worship. I believe that every Sunday, there are husbands and wives come to church, maybe bitterness in their heart toward one of them, and then they try to worship God, thinking it all go away. And we know it doesn't. That's called hypocritical worship. There are families who come to our church that probably have major problems with their kids and all this bitterness is in their heart they walk through these doors hoping that God somehow will fix it. Maybe a song will take it away. It won't work that way. You need to get on your knees before God, repent of the attitude and ask God for his forgiveness. Maybe there's a fellow Christian that we don't even particularly care for. Something happened to cause some kind of bitterness between us. The Bible says that you know what, we have to make sure that we go out of our way to make sure that things are right with our personal relationships. Psalm sixty six, eighteen. The Psalmist says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. First Samuel fifteen twenty two says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. You say, well, how do you find the person who's angry with me? Well, you know what? You know. We all know. If we have an issue with somebody, God is just saying, you know what? Reconcile it. Deal with it. Last thing this morning, verses 25 to 26. He not only talks about the effect of his words in those other two ways, but he also, their own self-righteousness, their way they worship, but our own relationships with others. Um, He says in verse 25, he says, Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out till you have paid the last penny. The image of the Lord here is very graphic, and he uses an illustration borrowed um, from the old legal method of dealing with debtors and what they would do. The dead of this particular worshiper had come to the place where he's actually being dragged off into court. And the key to the solution here, he says in verse 25, is agree with your adversary quickly. Um, and has the idea of immediately resolving a problem before you continue to worship God. If you know there's a problem with somebody, deal with it. I mean, we're all adults, let's just talk about it. Um, don't wait until you have the right time or, you know, well, you've got to go and pray about it. You've got to do all this stuff that we make up excuses because we don't want to confront someone or we don't want someone to confront us. And basically what he's saying is settle your case out of court. Don't wait till it becomes this major issue. Be quick about it. And so he's focusing here on reconciliation with our relationships. You know, I, some people, I think, are just kind of geared toward holding grudges and geared toward not letting things go. And other people are geared to just the opposite. They can offend somebody ten times and not even realize it and walk away, not even having care in the world. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's just different personalities. And I think that we have to stop and we have to realize, you know what, that aside, what, where's our attitude? You know, it's not just about doing all this external things as Jesus was teaching here. It's about what's going on in your heart. Um, if, if, if there's something wrong, if there's something awry, go to God. Go to God right now. Don't wait. He wants to be reconciled to you. He wants you to be reconciled to others. Well, Jesus' teaching here is pretty hard. Who is a murderer? Well, have you ever been angry? Called somebody a name? Whether a family member or a stranger. Have you ever cursed anybody? Have you ever come to church, worship, while you still had bitterness in your heart? I think we could all say yes, 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 yes. God says, you know what? Then you're the same as a murderer because you have allowed bitterness, hatred, and anger to enter your heart. And he asks the question, who deserves God's judgment? Who deserves... Death and hell. Who deserves it? We all do. There's not a person in this room that doesn't deserve it. Because the Bible says in Romans 323 that we have all sinned. Doesn't say what kind of sin. We've all sinned and come short of God's glory. And it says the wages of that sin is what? Death. Spiritual death. How do you escape it? We're all murderers, we're all in the same boat together. No murderer will inherit the kingdom of God because we're all deserving death and hell. How do we escape God's judgment? It's only one way. Because you're, you're looking at this situation, you're going, well, that's impossible. Everybody would go to hell if that be the case. Exactly the point. That's where God wants us. He wants us desperately on our knees saying, man, I need something else. I can't do this on my own. What are we going to do? Jesus here wants to drive his listeners to the fact that they cannot be righteous on their own. We don't have any righteousness of our own. And the minute we begin to think we do, that's pride. (laughs) We're all sinners saved by grace, I pray, that that's the truth. We both, all of us deserve death, all of us deserve hell. But it's only by the grace of God that we're excused, that our sin is forgiven. The righteousness that we desperately need only comes from God. Romans 3.20 says, By the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified. In other words, you can't do enough to work your way into heaven. Because it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ which is put on us. It's imputed to us. It's given to us by God himself. Even though we're not the Mansons or the Bin Ladens of this world or the Jeffrey Dahmers, we look at them and say, I'd never be like that. You know what? We're all in the same boat, and we all need the grace of God. And he offers that through Christ. He offers his love. He offers his forgiveness. He's offering a payment for our debt that we cannot pay. And his desire is that we be reconciled to him. Such an absolutely holy God. He, he wants to He desires so much to be reconciled with murderers like us, with evil, sinful people, that we can come to His Son because that's why He gave His Son, that we can follow in His pattern, that we can find it in our hearts to be reconciled not only to God, but to our brothers and sisters in this world in which we live. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you're a God who cares so much for our souls, so much for our eternal state. And Lord, we pray that you would minister your grace in this place this morning. I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has yet to put their faith, their trust, just by a simple act of prayer, by crying out to you, God, be, be merciful to me, a sinner. I know it's not about me. I know I can't do anything to earn this salvation. It's got to come from your hand. It's a gift of you, God. I pray that you'd grant that to me. He'll answer that prayer today. He'll make you a new person in Christ. He'll forgive all the guilt and the anguish that's there. And he'll replace us with love and joy and peace and long-suffering. He'll make you the kind of person that you desire, he desires you to be. And all of a sudden, you'll have a whole new life in front of you. Because the Bible says, behold, old, all, all old things have passed away. Everything has become new in Christ. It's a clean slate. Starting all over. It's such a wonderful gift that God gives to us. I pray that if you've yet to pray that prayer, I pray that you do it this morning. And for believers, I just pray that we'd be bold in our stand for Christ. Our, our bold and biblical truth. Our bold be bold on biblical standards, that we wouldn't be merely mouth out there in the world, afraid of what people are going to think about us. But Lord, that we would stand up for what's right. Not because we think it's right, but because you think it's right. And let the results to you. Father, we pray you'd bless this day. Give us a a good day with family and friends. and, And just bless our time, our closing song together. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.